Good morning. Good morning. Please find a place to sit and let's begin. We got a full program today. Um, let's begin as we have been beginning in silence. Just do what you need to do to be here. If you need to close your eyes, that's okay. And um, I've been uh, continuing to modify and adapt this this uh, Gallic um, blessing. Grace be in our heads and in our thinking. Grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. Grace be in our ears and in our hearing. Grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. Grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. Grace be in our end and in our departing. Um, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for being here. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. Um, I want to give a shout out to um, Susan Peterson and Bob Webb for the happy hour that we had Friday night. That was, that was incredibly moving. And I think for those of you who didn't come, Friday was Veterans Day. And Susan and Bob had asked those who wanted to to get up and share stories about their connection with um, Veterans Day in one way or another. And a number of people did that. Bob took pictures of the event. And that's out there in, the, in, the, in that hallway. And if you would like one of those pictures, you said you would email them to people. Thank you all for that. That was just a, that, that was a great thing to do. And I want to thank you all for your uh, support during this time of transition when we're moving to another location. The movers actually come tomorrow to pack up what's left of our house after all these years because we've been sorting what to keep, what to donate, and what to uh, give away. And then to, the actual move is on Tuesday. So when I see you again next week, we'll be in a different place. I also want to tell you that uh, Wayne Day, um, former senior minister of this church, who actually was the reason that Sherry and I started attending St. Paul's, his memorial service will be this Saturday at 10 a.m., and um, if it had not been for Wayne, Sherry and I would not be here. And if it had not been for Dr. Jim Bankston, I would not be here. And Jim is going to come and introduce our speaker. Dr. Bankston is um, a person who demands a huge amount of credit and applause for bringing an issue of integrity to this congregation. Thank you. Thank you, Bill, and thank all of you for that uh, response. Uh, Bill asked me if I'd just say a word of introduction about David Leslie, our speaker today, because I guess, David, we've been friends for 25 years, something like that, where our times have uh, uh, overlapped here in the Houston community. But uh, we're very fortunate to have David Leslie as the speaker this morning. He's the executive director of the Rothko Chapel, uh, uh, just not very far from us. Many of you know something about the Rothko Chapel. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But uh, he has a vast experience of uh, leadership in basically 
particularly nonprofits and the faith communities uh, in lots of places, including uh, ecumenical ministries in Portland, Oregon, and also a stint with the World Council of Churches in Geneva, Switzerland. So uh, he has uh, been around some and worked in lots of places, but he's basically a Texan. Uh, he and I were both born behind the pine curtain, as we sometimes say, in East Texas. <laughs> he told me not to tell you that, but uh, uh, we share that, and uh, we, uh, we are still overcoming it, but we're doing, we're doing our best. Uh, David has also been uh, Executive Director of Interfaith Ministries uh, here in Houston, and uh, he is a graduate of the University of Texas and also has his theological degree theological degree from Austin Presbyterian Seminary. I asked him if he uh, was ordained. He said never was. He never took that step, but he does have his uh, theology degree. I think most of you know Rothko Chapel uh, brings a wonderful combination of emphasis in arts and uh, social justice and uh, upholding uh, religious values in the broadest sense in our community and has a worldwide audience of appreciation. And I won't say much more about it than that because I know that'll be part of uh, David's talk with you today. So we're just delighted to welcome to the Ordinary Life class, David Leslie. Morning. So what we're going to do now is we're going to try to figure out this technology. And we're going to throw our papers around. Uh, this is actually a routine of informality. Uh, you know, I was, I was really, Jim said, you know, we start promptly at 945 and we've got this uh, production we do. And I'm like, is this a TED talk on a Sunday morning? This is kind of heavy, you know. I'm going to move this over. Is that okay if I do this? All right, and then we're gonna, we've got a little pointer here. Well, listen, it is just uh, really, really um, great to be here with you all this morning. Uh, it's just kind of our focus. Um, I, I really like what Bill started us with, uh, with, the, uh, with the reading. I wanna add two scripture readings to get, and again, get us kind of into the mode of what I'm gonna talk about today. Very familiar text, the first from Micah. He has called you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The second reading is from James. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Surely that faith cannot save, can it? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill. And yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. I start with those scriptures as we are going to take a bit of a journey uh, with the Rothko Chapel. Because for the chapel, the concept of faith and justice love and justice, contemplation and action, in some way are the Holy Trinity. Uh, a little bit about the chapel. So I'm gonna, we're gonna do a little contemplation and then we're gonna do a little action. 
before we get started, I think for uh, my own information, maybe for both of you, how many of you all have been to the Rothko Chapel? Okay, we'll do it the other way. How many have not been to the Rothko? You don't have to, I'm not trying to out you or anything. Uh, but it's good to know. So here's another question. How many of you all have been in your lifetime a hundred times or more to the Rothko Chapel? We have a good friend of ours. Uh, he owns a, he and his sister own a small chemical company here in Houston. He comes 250 times a year. He has built this into his practice every day, almost every day after work, to just come, refocus, and get, get back on the grid again, or back on the cacophony of life. How many of you all have come 50 times or more? How many of you all have brought tourists or family members, like, what are we going to do with these people? Okay, well, there we go. I said to somebody the other day, it dawned on me, that uh, they're really, if you really want to get to know Houston, and, and Jim's introduction was, was, was very generous. I, I was here from 93 to 97 with Interfaith Ministries. Now, I'll, put my, I'm a conf I'll confess, because we're a church. Um, I used to live in Austin. I used to live in Dallas. I used to live in East Texas. And where would we never, ever want to live? Houston. So I came to Houston and realized, wow, this is not what I thought Houston was going to be. And then in uh, 2015, after 18 years in the Pacific Northwest, came back to direct the chapel, very kind and, and very surprising invitation, mind you. And it wasn't like coming back, it was like coming to a new town, which I think was part of what the DNA of Houston was, always kind of looking outward, never being stayed, what's next? Um, so I got here and I too have to take relatives around town. So I came up with the Holy Trinity. You wanna turn the stereotype upside down, the beer can house, the orange show, in the Rothko Chapel. You take them to those three, I guarantee they'll never think of Houston the same. But it's really a privilege to be here because it is a place that people come to from all over the world. Uh, we're back, you know, kind of post uh, uh, height of the pandemic in some way, not post COVID. But on a given year, 100,000, 120,000 visitors for over 100 countries, all states. It's a place that people come for a lot of different reasons. Uh, pilgrimage, uh, we get a lot of people coming for a variety of reasons, art, spirituality, they read about it in their art history class or they were an architect in training, or it's a place for solace. I mean, being here so close to the medical center, a lot of people come to the chapel to just focus, to be a place to, to kind of uh, recalibrate. Uh, in fact, uh, a couple weeks ago, there was a family from Spain and uh, the, the wife was here for indefinite time for treatment. So the chapel is where they came to kind of get ready for that journey. So it, it's a place that brings a lot of people. And it is a place of, of uh, contemplation. And I'll start with that. Uh, if you come into the chapel, uh, what you'll, you'll be invited to kind of slow down, to get off the grid, to just kind of breathe a little bit, let your eyes start adjusting, so that when you come into the inner sanctum, the sanctuary, that sense of light, that sense of interplay with the elements, uh, with the Rothko paintings, uh, a little bit about that. Uh, John and Dominic Demonil were the founders, the visionaries, French immigrants, uh, Schlumberger family, if you know that side of, uh, of Houston's life, uh, and uh, very, very committed 
to a kind of spirituality, a religiosity that can only be described as ecumenical with the biggest E possible. Uh, for them, in those days, it was about Muslim relationships, relationships with Jews, relationships between Protestants and Catholics. But they had a curiosity that kept them very, very non-parochial in a way. And they had an idea of creating here in Houston when they came here uh, an interfaith chapel that would be a place, as they said, a place for people of faith and those with none. Uh, so a place that people could really gather together in shared humanity and shared uh, uh, interest of things that really mattered with an invitation to go deep, to really think about what's in your heart, who you are. I read those scriptures. What does that mean to you? What does that mean your calling in life, your vocational calling? Uh, what is also interesting, they commissioned Mark Rothko. Uh, Rothko was a secular Jew uh, who uh, was uh, family immigrated from uh, what is now known as Latvia. Uh, he actually was very interesting, grew up in Portland, Oregon, bar mitzvah in Portland, Oregon, and then ends up going to Yale one year, drops out, goes to New York, and the rest is history. But uh, he, at some point in his career, starts painting these large, darker form paintings um, as a way to really uh, invite people into this dialogue with themselves and with the world around them. It's, uh, if you've been to the chapel, you know they're very, very huge. They're very, very big paintings. Uh, but there are no images. And for the Demonils, one of the things that they were exploring was how does art invite spiritual conversation? Um, and not in the way that we normally know is like through, oftentimes we think Sistine Chapel, iconography with images that almost are telling you a story or directing you in a way, but without images, so that you in a way are creating that narrative. So it's a place of uh, welcome, it's a place of hospitality, it's a place of, uh, of uh, meditation. So true on the grounds. Uh, if you, uh, we have a lot of work going on at the chapel right now. We've done a restoration project. I'll say a little bit of re restoration of the chapel, but also have added uh, birches and uh, places to sit, other meditative spots on the chapel. So I invite you to come, bring a picnic, bring your dog. Please don't put it in the pool because that's what happens all the time. We got to get them out of the pool. But it really is a place to to come and. And along that journey, if you're bringing relatives or friends around town, just take a moment to stop. And it's one of the pieces like practice. It's meditative practice. It's over and over and over again because you never know when you need it, and you never know what might be the result of it. So the grounds as well as the inside of the chapel are designed for meditation. But it's also a place of action, and I want to spend some time on the social justice part of the chapel's uh, ministry and mission. Uh, for the Demonils, and again, I use that text, uh, faith and work, life, justice, contemplation, action, that was essential to the being, the DNA of the chapel. There are other art, some may say art chapels, the Nevelson Chapel in New York. Uh, some may know uh, Louise Nevelson was an artist, uh, the Open Church in New Harmony, Indiana. I mean, it's, the chapel is not unique in that way. But I think the commitment to social change and social justice makes the chapel unique in the genre of institutions. So, <clears throat> very interesting story here in Houston. There was a, a, a competition 
in a way from the National Endowment of the Arts around public art in metropolitan areas in the 60s. So about 65 or 66, the Demonels met Barnett Newman, very well-known artist uh, at contemporary Mark Rothko, who built, uh, designed a sculpture called the Broken Obelisk. Uh, the Broken Obelisk is the other main, the only other art piece on the chapel campus. So if you've come to the chapel, you know that, uh, I think I'll go back here, you know that there is a pool and there is a, uh, the Broken Obelisk. Well, the Demonils wanted it here in Houston. In fact, they wanted it so bad, they put up half the money to match an NEA grant to put the Broken Obelisk at City Hall. So you know Houston City Hall with a reflecting pool. The idea was to put the sculpture in the pool. So it went through the Art Commission. Everybody agreed, but then it went to City Council. And there was a back conversation with, I think Louis Welch was the mayor at the time. And uh, John Demonil had a conversation with him, and Louis said, it ain't gonna happen, because they had one other requi one requirement, that would be dedicated to the life of Dr. King, who had just been assassinated, with a little marker, a dedication marker, not on the sculpture, but by the pool. And uh, he said, it ain't gonna happen, John. He said, part of it's because of the race issues in Houston at the time, and that they only saw that leaders as inflaming the situation. There's another little story to remember, and in fact, if you go to the MFA with the Stokey Carmichael exhibit that's on right now, you will see a, a, a picture of Dr. King uh, on the eve of giving a sermon at Riverside Church in 1967, which is his sermon that he gave with uh, laity and clergy concerned about the Vietnam War, where he really came out against the Vietnam War. So remember that at that time, there, the forces against King are growing, including those who didn't believe that he should be talking about the war, because it deviated from uh, the, what many felt the core issue around civil rights in America. So here we come to Houston, you've got these kind of folks that are against King because he's speaking out against the war, and then you got the whole overplay of race. So at the end of the day, city council says, nope, we don't want the sculpture. So they pull the sculpture and they decide to keep it in the yard. Uh, John Demonell, I gotta read this. After the council meeting, John dashed off two letters. He wrote to Barnett Newman to keep him advised, quote, we had first wanted the broken obelisk to be dedicated to the memory of Martin Luther King, but revoltingly enough, the city council wouldn't have it. John alerted the artist, so we substituted the biblical inscription you will see in the attached memorandum. That text addressed to the city council suggested an alternative, and I quote, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <laughs> So it was, uh, you, you also get the inside of the Demonils, right? I mean, they were kind of a feisty people, feisty people. But uh, they really, really said, that's it, then we pulled it. So meanwhile, the chapel was originally going to be at the campus at the University of St. Thomas. It was going to be a Catholic ecumenical chapel. Uh, that just didn't work out for a lot of reasons. So they were buying up land, you know, right to the west of the chapel and uh or the university for the what is now the manil and the rothko chapel and it just was perfect here they were building this chapel they put the reflecting pool in and um 
There's another picture uh, of the dedication. There's the chapel, that's 1971. Uh, it was quite a turnout. In fact, uh, one of our heroes here is Reverend Bill Lawson, you all may know. Uh, Bill was one of the speakers at, uh, we went back a little fast. Uh, this isn't Bill, but we had speakers from all over credit. Scott King sent emissaries to the event. And then, um, this is probably what you're very familiar with when you come to the chapel today. You'll see that's the first thing you see on the, on the lawn. So that issue of social justice has always been part and parcel of the work at the chapel. I want to say a little bit about the two saints. Uh, the chapel has two saints. I made that up today for this because I don't think we really formally have saints. But uh, and I can't get this thing to, let's see, let's see how we go back here. There we go. And I, I, I'm, I don't know how this thing keeps moving. So be, is that what it is? I just keep clicking? No, there it did. I, I was off. One of the things we do, we have a couple programs we do every year. Uh, one of them is uh, a program on the occasion of Dr. King's birthday, which is January 15th. And we actually started these programs well before there was a national holiday. And the idea was really to come back to the question of the living legacy of Dr. King. You know, I think this is so often we have our saints, we have our heroes, right? We put them on a pedestal, we put them in a box, and that's it. But the question is really how does the uh, legacy of a person like Dr. King continue to be influential? How does that legacy stoke other ideas and other leaders and other transformative type works. Um, uh, just a few people that have come through the chapel on this occasion. Uh, Ruth May Harris from the Freedom Singers. How many of you all remember the Freedom Singers? They were the part of the music behind uh, in the civil rights movement. And she was great. She's been to the chapel a couple of times and they're still out singing today, singing justice today. Uh, Leonard Pitts, uh, columnist from uh, Miami Herald and um, he uh, actually was a speaker using the text, uh, the uh, urgency of, uh, of now that is drawn from that sermon, the talk that King gave at Riverside Church in 1967. But he was talking about that some of the things that we are dealing with today is still urgent today. It has not gone away. Um, wonderful program we did a few years ago with, uh, uh, see, I don't beyond my pay grade, I think. We'll just go back and forth, back and forth. But uh, uh, we did a wonderful program with uh, Reverend Bernard Lafayette, who's kind of in the middle, and then uh, Ambassador Rao, who was former ambassador uh, from India to, India to the United States, and we we're really exploring uh, nonviolence and how does nonviolence become still relevant in social change movements today, and what is meant by nonviolence? Part of it's what was meant by, what is meant by nonviolence? And both of them, as some of you all know, Dr. King goes to India for about a month or two months uh, after Gandhi had died, of course, but really looking how did Gandhi incorporate nonviolence into social change, his social change approach uh, uh, to life. And a wonderful evening of dialogue with the two of them uh, about, the, about that today. And they both do training still today, so it was very educational. Uh, some of you all know, um, so yeah, that's going to work. Dr. Bullard, Robert Bullard, who is on uh, the far end, uh, he's a Texas Southern University professor, 
Some have called him the grandfather of the environmental justice movement, somebody who's been dealing with environmental racism for years. But again, looking at King, uh, influence and legacy as it relates to environmental justice in the United States. Um, so those are some examples. Now our other saint is Saint Oscar Romero. Now Oscar Romero is a, a character within the life of the chapel that goes back to 85. So the, the, the chapel at the time was doing a lot of programming and as you remember there were the wars in Central America. And suddenly there were a lot of people coming to the chapel talking about the situation, human rights violations in Central America and things like that, in Latin America even more generally. And the point that was challenged to the chapel was, what could the chapel do to be more helpful to bring the voices of people oppressed in that part of the world? And part of that then became what is known now as the Oscar Romero Award. Uh, the first award was given in 1986. It's a cash award plus a, a lot of support and other platforms to share stories. But in the spirit of Oscar Romero, who many of you all may know was assassinated, martyred in 1980 uh, uh, during Eucharist uh, at the service in, in El Salvador. And with somebody who I always find very interesting because most of us know him because of his work and his advocacy on behalf of the poor. But he was a pretty mainstream guy. I mean, he was, not, they, uh, he was not a radical person. He was very much in kind of the environs of the church and in the, in the political, but actually had a transformational experience, which then moved him further and further away from kind of the oppressive powers to those voices and people and what he could do uh, with his radio programs, with his sermons, in support of the poor, which again put him further away from the powers at the time and then was murdered. And I think that, again, in that idea of living legacy, uh, what could we do to help further that uh, concept? So we have this, we have an award program. I'm going to uh, show you a few slides. This is just, again, ideas of using the space in a way uh, to uh, think about um, issues that uh, impact us, but also our responsibility. This was one of the biggest challenges that was happening is that uh, not to get into a big political discussion today about Central America, because this is still spinning out today, but what is the role of our own government? What's the role of our own uh, state, our own leadership? What do we, do, uh, where is our culpability in these kind of issues? So at least creating dialogue and conversation. Um, many of us, you know, we, we live on the Mexican-U.S. border. So often it's easy to say it's those people's problem over there. No, it's really all of us. So a way to kind of build that solidarity. Uh, we've had all kinds of speakers coming from all parts of the world. There's a picture of Rigoberto Manchu, who is a Nobel laureate. Um, we have uh, from the Congo, a uh, physician who also was working at helping liberate children who were conscripted into uh, war, into gangs, into militias. Uh, two, of, two of the first people I met when I came to the chapel is Berta Caceres and uh, Miriam Miranda from Honduras, uh, indigenous leaders, activists, working on environmental justice, peacemaking, indigenous rights. And the tragedy, this was, th that award was in the fall of 2015, November 2015, and sadly, uh, 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 <clears throat> Berta Caceres was uh, murdered uh, in March of the next year. So we had a vigil at the uh, chapel in her, her, her memory and her honor. 
And I think that one of the things that is really, in the sense of what do you steward, uh, that sense of stewardship of not just place, but it's a stewardship of memory, right? Of memory, of, uh, of things that people are committed and the privilege of being able to share space with people who you know, are really dealing with very, very difficult issues, but also have a grace, uh, 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 an ability to laugh, to dance. But it's, it's really something. But to see that one of the things that was very interesting about their visit here was um, their Garufana and Lenka, that's their uh, community, their, their culture. And I didn't know, we didn't know there was that community here in Houston. And by them coming and being out in the community, we certainly start to broaden who our sense of neighbor, who we are as Houstonians. You know, Steve Kleinberg, as some of you all know, has uh, done this longitudinal study of Houston. And he'll be the first to tell you it's, we're one of the most diverse cities. We're still one of the most segregated cities. We live in our pockets. So the, another way that the chapel becomes a place of connection. Uh, 2020, uh, we we've, uh, did a uh, two-year focus on climate change. These are three uh, awardees uh, that we, we honored, we had the privilege of honor. Um, one was uh, uh, from um, uh, Honduras, another activist, environmental activist, a Gwich'in, member of the Gwich'in uh, First Nation. Um, activists and then uh, from Puerto Rico. And what's interesting is we do talk a lot about the chapel being at the intersection of art and spirituality and human rights. And one of the things that we, I, find, I have found that to be so helpful is that there are so many different mediums through which we express that which matters. Think about that, so many mediums. So how do you express what matters? Well, for some it's visual art. For some it might be practicing law. For others, it might be dancing, poetry, prayer, sermons, sitting in silence. So to be able to kind of integrate that. So uh, our friend at the end, Jorge Diaz, he's a big puppet maker. These huge puppets. And after the hurricane uh, in uh, Puerto Rico, and really disparity uh, to be able to see getting tens of thousands of people on the street. So being able to just for a moment show the way that people express which matters and then putting it into dialogue, cross-section dialogue is great. I'll just touch on a few other things. It is a place that you can come. You're welcome all the time. I brought some program brochures that are backed by the uh, name tag. So if you want to take something, please come. Experience the chapel in its many, many modes, right? From just coming at 4 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, sitting for an hour, half hour, or coming to a program. It's, uh, we again try to activate the space in a lot of different ways, so we're getting introduced to a lot of different people and mediums. Program we did on Black Lives Matter is round circle. We do a lot of in the round kind of conversation pieces, uh, just again inviting people to come and meet one another and talk about things that are on their hearts. Um, sometimes it's, uh, what is it, public theater in a way. Uh, this is an immigrant who said, you know, uh, Come touch me, give me a hug. I am you, you are me, but at the same time, you may not see me exactly as a friend, but here I am, I'm open. So a little, sometimes a little political theater. Uh, we had a wonderful, this was a very interesting program, uh, professor from uh, Texas State University, artist, uh, professor who uh, uh, did a project, we did a joint project with the Contemporary Arts Museum as part of our work on criminal justice reform. 
And uh, these are, are letters from people that have written on death row in Huntsville, uh, TDC. And these are letters. And then we read these letters and then broke into groups and talked about our own feelings about capital punishment. Not a right answer. Remember, come back to those panels. There's, it's not about dictating what you should believe. But at the same time, how do we converse? How do we get to know it? It was a very, very interesting evening. When you take random people and you put them together and you don't know the background, but to be able to have a place where you can have respectful dialogue. Think about the screeds that we're hearing all the time. Monologues masquerading as dialogue, I like to say. But to actually have a place where you can just, it's safe enough to have that conversation, to explore things, to, you know, I'm not so sure about this. So it was a, it was a great evening, and we do that periodically. Uh, we, uh, this is a quilt project. Um, uh, you all may remember the AIDS quilt. Well, this was a project on sexual violence and uh, the culture of, uh, of rape and uh, violence against both men and women. It was interesting. These are actually quilts. Each piece is made by somebody. It could be a family member. It could be a victim. Uh, men, women, children. And we had them out on the lawn. And then we did a program that night, a dialogue around uh, about uh, how to end that culture. Uh, this spring, uh, as the war in uh, Ukraine um, started, we activate the plaza a lot. This was a, a vigil in support of, uh, for peace in, in Ukraine. Uh, and then one of our favorite, uh, uh, let's see if I can get this one to pause. Let's see, where are we? Uh, let me go back here. So we had a grant this year from the National Endowment for the Arts to create a, uh, we created a series called Songs for Justice. So in the, uh, the MLK event that we did this year on January 15th, it was on how did King understand and use music as part of the civil rights, his approach to civil rights. So we had this grant, and this was the concluding uh, uh, program we, do on the, we did in the plaza. We do a little summer sound series with Thomas Mufumo uh, from Zimbabwe, known as the Lion of Zimbabwe. He's a very interesting guy because he was part of the revolution in Zimbabwe. As you remember, it was Rhodesia, and it was Ian Smith government, and he was part of that movement with then Robert Mugabe and you know, that, that revolution, but as a musician uh, contributing to, like, Ruth May in a way, but this is there. Well, the problem was that when Mugabe then gets elected, I don't think that's quite the right word, the same similar practices start to be evident. So Thomas Mufumo starts to criticize the government and then is forced, he's in prison, then he's forced out. And he ends up in all places in Eugene, Oregon. So my son, youngest son, who is a musician, and he, he happens to be in line at the grocery store and he had just been talking, he met a couple of people who played with Thomas Mufumo. There he is in the grocery store line. So my son calls me, he says, you're not going to believe what happened, Dad. And he tells me the story. So through that connection, we were able to get him at the chapel uh, this summer. And uh, what I think what, one thing I will just say as the director of the chapel, people say, well, that's kind of a dour place. I hear that periodically. You don't have to tell your own experience. But man, it's dark in there. It's, this doesn't look like much fun. I'm telling you what, we have fun there, too. We really do. I mean, I think that, again, coming back to what matters, a lot of that has to do with what's in your heart and, you know, being able to live in different modalities and, uh, uh, you know, you got to laugh. you got to cry. 
you got to be strong and you got to be weak. You got to be certain, you got to be uncertain. I mean, this is about human life. So hopefully we can exhibit some of that, you know, in our lives together. Um, and then I want to, I think this is my last uh, slide. We did something for the first time on November the 2nd. Uh, we put together a day of remembrance, a day of just thinking about uh, life and death and different practices and understanding. Uh, on the occasion, we used the occasion of All Saints Day and Dia de los Muertos. And it was a powerful evening. What you see in that one picture, we created a little altar and we asked people to bring mementos, uh, you know, things that matter, people you might have lost or you're thinking about. And then we had cards, and there were probably 100 people there, and we had 100 cards by the, or maybe more by the time it was over, of just gifts in a way making a, a testament to, uh, you know, those who we, who we love. And uh, it was another way to kind of, again, remind ourselves of everything in a way that we're, we do and what we're about has a spiritual dimension. I started with spirituality and social justice, but all that is something about what it means to be human, uh, the questions that we have, the things we, so it's another way to activate the space. So we also, uh, how many of you all have been to the chapel for a memorial service or a wedding or a life cycle event? Yeah, so you'll see that. We just had, uh, we have a, uh, service coming up uh, next Saturday of a young man who committed suicide. And uh, the, the chapel was a place the family felt like, given all the different interests and disparate you know, backgrounds, that the chapel was not a neutral place, but a place where they could all come to a wedding of 150 people the other week. It was, you know, it's, a, it's another way to kind of offer that to the community. Uh, the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll bring to your attention, we're... Um, in a capital mode right now. We uh, started a project uh, in 2016. The uh, Broken Obelisk went off for conservation. I don't know if you all remember. It was a pretty big story. We got great coverage of that because not often do sculptures get taken up to Connecticut, you know, and it's on cranes and stuff. And then we redid the, uh, the reflecting pool. Uh, it used to be light color. It's dark color. Uh, that early picture that I showed you, the lights were actually in the water. And we took them out and now light it from down. So but one thing I would say, if you haven't been to the chapel at dusk or in early evening, take the time to come. It's quite stunning. And with these new birches, it, it, it just sort of is mysterious and then kind of, oh, there it is. You know, it's, it's, it's very visually attractive. Uh, we're also, uh, we built a new uh, welcome house, um, decommercialized the space. So it's a welcome house with book sales and things like that. A uh, place to greet visitors. We have little lockers that you know people can put their baggage in. It's amazing to me how many people book their flights through Houston four hour later just to come to the chapel. We get that all the time. I had a fellow coming in from Sao Paulo the other day to New Jersey and he had booked his flight through a intercontinental uh, four hour layer so he could get an Uber and come down to the chapel. So it's how we welcome folks are important. But we're also building a new programming center, and I kind of this is part of this justice, spirituality, contemplation, action, is that 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 juxtaposition between, say, the inner sanctuary of the chapel. Let's just say for a moment that's a time to go deep, to go inside, uh, not narcissistic individualism, but individual reflection. You come out. There's the broken obelisk. That issue about community. What is our? What are we being called to do? 
the new programming center will also allow us to even further the engagement of, of folks. Right now, all programming's in the chapel. You can imagine that's pretty disruptive for the day-to-day -day visitation. Hard on the building, we'll have a new programming center. And I said to somebody that going back to that Gandhi uh, nonviolence program that we did, to be able to have the center the next, for the next couple of days where they could lead the workshops and engage for teachers and activists and others who are working on social change, uh, it would have been beautiful. So we're gonna, we're, we've got this uh, on the docket. Uh, we hope to start construction on this phase uh, second quarter of next year. So there's activity. But I, I will say that one of the things that I have enjoyed about working at the chapel is that it's horizontal. Uh, horizon, you see something you're going towards, but you never get there. You, remember, the horizon just keeps moving, so it keeps pulling you forward. So that's a uh, little bit about the Rothko Chapel. We have some programs. I have brochures over there. It's got the website and kind of keep up with things. Um, uh, and uh, just, uh, uh, you know, come over and see, see us at any time. Give an email. Love to host you, give a tour, and uh, come see the chapel. So I know we, we got a few minutes for questions. Sure. Or? I want, I, I want to yep. say, first of all, David, thank you for being here. Uh, <clears throat> I have um, done a memorial service there for someone who committed suicide. I've done a wedding there. I've participated in an educational program there with Ilya mm -hmm. and LAO. Um, and we visited the chapel. It's one of the places that we do take people when they come because it's uh, remarkable. And um, I, I'm sure you remember that about four or five years ago, the MFA had a retrospective of mm -hmm. Mark Rothko's mm -hmm. paintings. <clears throat> and that was stunning to be able to follow his developmental work and all the way up to leading to the paintings that are in the chapel. Right. My experience is it's not dour. I, th I think that you can sit there and kind of, I love your metaphor of the horizon mm. because I look at the paintings and it seems like I'm looking past them. Right. Well, that's a, you know, I will say that's really interesting for me. My wife's an artist and a deaf educator and a lot of other things. And she goes, what do you know about art? She always does that to me. So, well, I'm a creative person. We're all creative. Uh, but but uh, one of the things she found, which is so congruent with what Rothko and I think the Dalmanels were after, is a lot of times people would say, well, let's say you have a small painting like about this size. And you'd say, well, that's very intimate, right? And then you're kind of into this miniature world, right? And you kind of, for Rothko, it's a flip. It's a big painting that becomes intimate because you are forced to be in that painting, right? And, and again, that kind of interaction that, and I, I have used this before. It's sort of in iconography, you know, it is with iconography without images. Because an icon also invites a dialogue, a conversation, right? It's, it, it may convey a story, but it opens up the invitation for conversation. So in a way, when you start to think about what intent was, and Rothko's intent was not to tell you what to believe, but to invite you into that conversation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, was, you, it was funny, you should mention uh, that uh, retrospective. Yesterday at the MFA, there's a new book out that Christopher Rothko and Kate Rothko Brazell have put together 
uh, on the really the retrospect. It's, it's, it's the full range of Rothko's uh, work. And um, I said to you earlier, he was a secular Jew, but he was bar mitzvahed, and he also sat Kaddish for his father mm. when he passed for uh, 11 months, didn't quite get to 12. It's just a funny story yesterday, but he was very deeply spiritual. And you can see that in his work, and I think you see that in all artists in a way. And I, I come back and I say, and I think everything we do in a way has a possibility, if not reality, it's spiritual. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So can we talk about money? What do you want to talk about? Well, how does the Rothko Chapel stay in business? What? That's, that's, I ask that question all the time. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, first of all, we do a lot of uh, fundraising. You know, we're just, we're like every nonprofit in town. We have events. We have, we very, very generous donors. Uh, we probably engage with most of the foundations in town that like our values. There are a few that don't like, you know, that's just the way it is. Uh, but we also were very blessed. Um, when Dominique uh, Demonil passed in 97, John had died in about mid-1970s. Uh, there was, you know, legacy from her estate that came, so we have an endowment. Uh, so about 50% of our funds comes from the endowment, and then 50% we raise uh, a year. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious. No, no, and, you know, it's just like I know somebody passing the plate here. We have our uh, little dip jars and our little things. That well, you they're planning money. on giving me a jet. Are they really? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I keep joking about it. I fear somebody might take it seriously sometime. You have a question for David, anybody? Yes, here's one. Jeannie? Uh, I've been there many times, but yeah. I never really understood. Did they have a competition for the painting, the artist selection, or how did the mills go about thinking about this concept? Because it's very unusual you know you're right sometimes people think it's depressing but then you sit there yeah. for a while and it is inspirational for me but um how is that done yeah so they uh a the couple things they they had some uh, uh two kind of mentors uh influencers in their lives one was father couturier he's a catholic priest but he was very 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 interested in sacred mo architecture and art and modern art um, it really introduced them to that concept. Uh, for example, in Vance, France, there's the Matisse Chapel. Um, very, again, very simple. Uh, so there was that kind of uh, tutorage, in a way, if that's a word. Uh, the other was Jermaine McKeggy, who was uh, our curator here in town, uh, internationally renowned, that also was very influential. Well, through these relationships, they're collecting art. And one of the things they, they I don't know if Houstonians appreciate, uh, you know, all the contributions people make and why they make them. They felt uh, Houston was a little backwatered culturally and artistic, so they really wanted to up the game here. So one of the things that they did is they were, they were major collectors and were introduced to Mark Rothko probably in the 50s and just got to know him and saw this progression. A lot of people, you know, I'm not a Rothko artist and I want to be real clear, the chapel is not a museum. The chapel is not a Rothko gallery. Uh, this is very important because it's very important to the Demonils. They commissioned him to do this work because they felt that it was in line with that value set that I was talking about earlier. So I just always wanted to say that to be clear. 
So they were seeing his transformation from what a lot of people know are these color fill paintings. A lot of people, that's what Rothko, is sort of the classic, but he was moving into these more darker forms. And I think for them, it was, that is what spiritual peace is about. So it's mysterium tremendum. Mm -hmm. This idea that mystery is, is something we lose so much in our, our prescriptive approach to religion and to spirituality. They felt that he, he could articulate sort of this quest we're all on. And they invited him. I mean, there was no competition. And they invited him. But, and remember that this was going to be a chapel at the University of St. Thomas. So the architect that they also commissioned was Philip Johnson. I should have said that earlier. Very well. I see a lot of heads nodding. Very influential in this city, too. You know, Philip Johnson designed uh, the, the main quad at the, at the University of St. Thomas. He designed the Demonil's home. I mean, his fingerprints are all over the city. So um, that, and, but these are like personal invitations. Uh, there are some in the world that can write those checks, Bill. You know, they just can kind of do that, and that's how that's how it came about. And then um, there was a falling out. I, if we got a, this kind of fun story. You got a couple minutes here. So Rothko and Johnson get into a tiff over the design of the chapel. If you go to the chapel, you know it's octagonal. And that's intentional because it's a Byzantine cross in the middle. Um, and uh, remember now, first of all, this is going to be at University of St. Thomas. Well, he wanted, he being Philip Johnson, an altar that's raised. He wanted a, like a 60-foot spire that would have come out with an oculus at the top for lighting so the light would have come down. And Rothko said, no, I want it simple. I want it basic. And they had a little bit of rumble. And they went to the mediators, which are the Demonils, and they sided with Rothko. So he leaves. So then Howard Barnstone, very well-known architect here in town, and Gene Aubrey then come in uh, and help finish out the project. But one last little thing. When you come to the chapel, we did this restoration, and I, I'd be glad to do a tour anytime. There used to be one set of doors when you came in. Now there are two. There's an air conditioning unit to help keep the humidity out. They couldn't figure out quite how to finish the chapel. So they're at the end. They're like, well, what do we do with the front door? And they didn't have an idea, so they call Philip Johnson. And he's the one that designed the front door. So there's some funny, there's some funny stories in the. I, I, th I think that we have no idea how gifted this city is by the demon elves. They were very, very, very generous to us. They were, and you know, I, I said the Holy Trinity, and it just dawned on me, you know, their, uh, Dominique's fingers are all over, you know, supporting the Orange Show. And you know, the Orange Show and the Beer Can House are now all part of one, you know, art nonprofit. So you could say she was the, the, uh, the other member of the Trinity, which now is what, a quadrini or whatever? So I think, the, do you have okay, more time one more question yeah. and then we're going to stop. You got to wrap it up. Uh, back when I went to Rothko and there wasn't enough light, I know I was supposed to believe that that was part of the artistic, but wasn't there a remodeling and haven't they added more lights? Yeah, let me see if I can, let's see, we were at the end of the show. Um, let's just see if I can. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll do that. We could do that another time. But there was a picture that I showed you. No, let's stop this. Stop it. Stop. There was a picture I showed you at the very beginning when we come into the chapel. Remember the doors? And then we enter inside with the skylight. Uh, 
That's exactly what is the result of the restoration of the chapel. So we spent about 15, 16 months, the chapel was closed. And uh, when, they, when the chapel opened in 1971, it was a skylight with tempered glass and that was it. Rothko never came to Houston, so I don't think he really understood the intensity of the light. And it really washed out the paintings. Whether there was possible damage is another issue, but clearly from a visual standpoint, it was really, really not uh, conducive to the eye and very bright days. So over about you know, 25 year period, there were a series of, of interventions like baffles. Uh, some of you all may remember that. And in fact, the last, when I came here in 15, it was a big baffle that hung into the, really into the ceiling with an oculus in the middle that then pushed the light out. It was very inadequate. So when I said dour, I wasn't joking. I mean, it was like, I went and did a talk at Pines Presbyterian and somebody said, are they, where are the paintings? And I said, well, on a dark day, if you didn't have the lights on, because they, you really couldn't see the colors, the brush strokes, the maker's mark, you know, the things that are about creativity. So um, what happened then, we did the restoration. Our light designer, uh, George Sexton, came up with this idea of louvers. These are actually fixed louvers in the skylight uh, that uh, take the light, bring it down, uh, and then cast it on, evenly on the walls. And Rothko was, uh, if you've ever seen his work, it's really amazing. Uh, he always wanted things to be lit with natural light. I mean, very, you know, that was the goal. So you come to the chapel today, and it's, I, I mean, it's stunning. Uh, I work there, so I'm like the cobbler's children have no shoes. But when I do get a moment, and uh, the best day to come is on a day where it's partly cloudy and the clouds are moving. And you sit there, and in 20 minutes, whatever you've got, you'll suddenly be interacting with the elements again, which was the intent. Uh, the lighting is, is superb, and you really start to get the, you, what you start to feel like any good chapel, any good sanctuary, is a sense of the, uh, the metaphysicality of the place, the, the DNA, the existential, so that you're suddenly engaged in, in, in an amazing conversation enhanced by these elements. So. so it occurs to me that if somebody didn't have one or if they wanted to enhance their daily spiritual practice, they could go to the Rothko Chapel. Bill, we would be welcome if they came, yeah. you know, and you and I could greet them at the front door. Thank you, David, for being here. Thank you all for being here. No matter where you go, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargoes, so watch your step and see you next week. Our speaker will be Dr. Bill Martin. See you. <laughs>